Well, please remain standing and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. This will be our Old Testament reading. We'll read verses 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. Amen. Let's turn now to our sermon text. Acts 26. Acts 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known For a long time, if they are willing to testify that, according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial 
because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced they ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, 
and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. You may be seated. John Stott, writing about this chapter, uh, makes reference to a wonderful pair of quotations that I want to share with you this morning as we begin. The first of them is from Martin Luther, from his commentary on Galatians, where he is uh, defending, as he so often um, had cause to do, the, the biblical teachings of that early stage of the Reformation from uh, the violent accusations against him and um, his colleagues by the Roman Church. And here's what he says to defend the Reformation teaching. We teach no new thing, Luther says, but we repeat and establish old things which the apostles and all godly teachers have taught before us. Earlier in this sermon series, back when we were in chapter 5, I, I mentioned this idea that um, during the Reformation and post-Reformation period, the Roman Church tried to characterize the Reformers as schismatics, still do today. Um, but people like Luther and others following his example have always maintained, no, Reformation was simply trying to be faithful to the apostolic faith. Once for all, delivered to the saints, as Jude says. We don't have a new message. We have a very old message we're seeking to recover. Um, you've heard of politicians saying things like, you know, I, I didn't leave such and such a party. That party left me. And that's why I changed my affiliation, that kind of thing. Well, the reformers were saying something similar. They were saying, we're not trying to leave the church, the church. The church, the medieval Roman church anyway, has left, has left the true gospel, has left the truth of the scriptures, and we're seeking to preserve it, to recover it, to be, we're part of that mainstream of the apostolic uh, gospel, the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And so if anyone is schismatic, it's not us. Uh, And this is why, this is uh, the other quote I mentioned that Stott brings to bear here, Uh, This one from an an early uh, Church of England writer named Lancelot Andrews, uh, who was defending that branch of the Reformation from Roman Catholic criticisms in a similar kind of way. Here's what that man said. He said, We are renovators, not innovators. We are renovators, not innovators. Our faith, he goes on, is the ancient Catholic faith contained in the New Testament, the three creeds, the four councils, only restored to its proper luster. I think that's beautiful. And yet again, today, as we've seen repeatedly in the book of Acts, we're again going to see Paul make the same point about his relationship to Judaism of his day 
and the Old Testament, the scriptures, uh, as they would refer to them. Um, And he's made this same argument before in other trial settings, um, but never before this particular uh, and particularly grand audience involving King Agrippa and this whole assembly of the kind of who's who of Caesarea and the government nobility of Judea. Uh, But before we get into it, let's just divide this passage into three sections to help us out this morning. First is going to be a living hope. It's verses 1 through 8. Second is a divine mission, verses 9 to 23. And third, a universal call, verses 24 to 32. So a living hope, a divine mission, and a universal call. I left with a cliffhanger last time, King Agrippa. Uh, this is Herod Agrippa II, you remember. He's, he's come processing in uh, with his queen, Bernice, and their royal retinue. And they've come here at the invitation of Festus, the Roman governor or procurator. Um, remember that Agrippa doesn't really have jurisdiction over Paul. Uh, in this case, Festus is the one who's actually the judge here, but he's seeking Agrippa's advice. He's kind of consulting with him and says, why don't you listen to him too and tell me what you think? Because you, Agrippa, are a local. You are a part of the Jewish culture, an insider to Jewish culture in a way that I can never understand. Um, and I have this prisoner and he's appealed to Caesar, but I don't know what to tell the emperor when I send him on up the chain because... He doesn't seem to have committed any Roman crimes. Can you please help me out figure out how to write this letter to Caesar? Verse 1, Agrippa now turns to Paul and he says, Paul, you now have permission to speak for yourself. says, then Paul stretched out his hand and this is sort of a conventional gesture that would have been familiar, just kind of what you do in this kind of situation, the kind of thing you'd expect someone to do when giving a formal speech in this public setting. And you notice immediately the way that Paul really uh, leans into this opportunity and expresses how glad he is to be addressing a ruler who knows all about Judaism from the inside. Remember, Agrippa was, in fact, ethnically Jewish. Even though he was not king over Judea, uh, he was of Jewish heritage. And so and had some responsibilities with regard to the temple and the priesthood and whatnot. And so you, you, you might expect that Paul would be um, reluctant to have to, to deal with someone um, so closely connected with Jewish culture, given the track record of how he has uh, been treated by the uh, leadership of Judaism in Jerusalem, the, the temple leadership and so on. It's consistently been his own countrymen who have been the hardest on him, and it's been the Romans who have protected him. And and so you might think that would lead Paul to kind of want to distance himself from his Jewish upbringing and background and try to kind of blend in like a chameleon with the Gentile world, say, I'm actually more like you guys. I'm just one of you and not like one of them. Or or at least uh, you might expect him to um, have a, a kind of sense of being intimidated before a grip or defensive, kind of with his fists up in this encounter with this ruler who is an insider to Judaism. But in fact, Paul does the exact opposite of that. Let's look at Paul's kind of disposition here. Paul um, has this, this confidence 
And why is that? It's because he knows that he is standing on the truth. He knows that he has nothing to fear from the facts. He knows that a, a truly, truly fair-minded insider to Judaism will be able to look at his case and see his innocence because he is innocent. Oh, that, that a truly fair-minded insider to Judaism will be able to see how hollow his opponent's accusations against him really are. This is the thing about Christianity in general, is that it invites and welcomes close scrutiny. It is not afraid of the facts. It is not afraid of hard questions. It is not afraid of people expressing their doubts. Why? Because the truth always has this advantage, that it is true, that it is the way things are, that it matches the reality of the world as God has made it. And that makes it, therefore, strong enough to take that scrutiny, to take that inquiry, to take those questions, to face those facts and not to shy away from them or explain them away, because they are God's facts about God's world and because God is a consistent coherent God who doesn't change, and who, who makes things what they are by his perfect and almighty power and plan and the unshakable truth of his character. And it is on that consistency of God that Paul is depending then, as he goes on with this great confidence to describe um, his own Jewish background. From my youth, he says, I've always been Jewish through and through, according to the strictest uh, party of Judaism I lived. I was a Pharisee. In other words, he's saying, I wasn't just a nominal Jew. I wasn't just a cultural Jew. I really believed this stuff. I really put it into practice in my life in the most rigorous kind of way that someone of my generation uh, had available to them. And so uh, here's what you need to know then, King Agrippa. What I'm teaching today, I teach not in spite of my Jewish upbringing, like, like a, a hippie or something, just like with a bumper sticker on his car, it says, question authority. That's not what Paul is doing. He is not rebelling against his Jewish upbringing. I'm not just rejecting everything I used to believe and saying no to that so that I can say yes to Jesus. No, Paul says, now I stand here on trial because of my Jewish upbringing, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, of all things, I am being accused by Jews, of all people. The people who, if they were really paying attention to the scriptures that we all profess to believe, they would be embracing the message of Jesus, not rejecting it, because it's there. It's there in black and white in the Old Testament scriptures themselves. It's like Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. I teach no new thing. We could paraphrase Paul as saying in the words of Luther. I teach no new thing, but I repeat and establish old things. I am a renovator, not an innovator. That 
is the heart of Paul's defense. I love the question that Paul asks next. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is that thought incredible by any of you? There's nothing in the Old Testament ruling out the possibility that Jesus is alive. There simply isn't. In fact, there is everything to suggest that the resurrection of Jesus fits exactly God's past pattern of saving actions and God's explicit promises of how he intended to act in the future in the final future day of salvation that the prophet said was coming. We read one of those passages just a few minutes ago from Ezekiel 37. Oh, dry bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, it was Isaiah 26, we read, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Why? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It might be a number of answers to that question, even in that courtroom that day. And certainly, if we opened the doors that question more broadly to range of audiences in the present day. Why do people reject the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That central historical fact on which the Christian faith is grounded. And again, I think there are many answers for many people. It's because there is something in their mental framework, the the furniture of their minds, where the resurrection of Jesus simply doesn't fit. Not because the idea of resurrection in general or of the resurrection of Jesus in particular is somehow irrational, that it's not because it's contrary to the evidence, not because it is inconceivable, not because it's impossible, but because people are mentally and spiritually committed to a kind of world, a, a kind of interpretation of reality where, where the resurrection of Jesus that, that just can't be true. And there are these assumptions that they're making about the world um, that they may not even be completely aware of consciously. And, and, and so, therefore, part of our task, I'm kind of getting into Sunday school now, but we'll elaborate on this more and have some discussion about it over the next weeks in Sunday school, talking about um, uh, apologetics right now. Is our task then, as believers, is to impress on people this very question of the Apostle Paul to examine, to get inside, to open up, help them to open up in their own minds, why is it that you think it incredible? Incredible, unbelievable, right? Um, Incredible that God raises the dead. Why is it that that seems so unbelievable to you? And are the reasons you find it unbelievable, are they really good reasons? Do they really hold up to scrutiny as strongly as the fact of the resurrection of Christ from the dead holds up? to such scrutiny, especially in this case, especially if you say you believe the prophets, especially if you say you believe, believe the prophets who, who repeatedly gave God's, prom- God's people these, these, these hints that, that God is a God who raises the dead. And so for this audience, especially, uh, Paul is, uh, um, is making a very compelling argument here on the basis of belief in the scriptures that the Jews embrace not in opposition to those scriptures. Okay, now we come to verse 9, where Paul 
gets into his own personal testimony again. Remember, we heard him give a similar recounting of his conversion back in chapter 22 uh, before the crowd at the temple. And uh, that, of course, was a repetition uh, in the book of Acts of the original uh, narrative of Paul's conversion that Luke gave us in chapter 9. We noted um, that back then that um, it's significant that this story is told three times at a fair amount of length, which shows that from Luke's perspective, it's extremely important in general and, ex- and extremely important to um, the, the point and structure of the book of Acts. Now, once again, as we noticed in chapter 22, we can see some new details in each retelling. Um, and especially in this final retelling of Paul's conversion story. For example, this is the first time that we hear the detail about Jesus telling Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, That's a word picture of like a cow kicking against a cattle prod and not wanting to go where it's being told to go. And it's a a Greek figure of speech um, that's used in several different ancient Greek plays, although I'm not sure that Jesus is, is quoting one particular ancient Greek play as much as he is using a figure of speech from the Greek language that would be known to to get this point across that, that Paul, you're being stubborn. Paul, you're being stubborn, but that stubbornness is being overcome. Your way that you're heading is not the one that's going to win out. No matter how hard you kick, you are being pursued by the hound of heaven and you are not going to get away from that sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing you to repentance. Another unique feature of this retelling of the story um, is a a little bit fuller recounting of what Jesus says there on the road to Damascus in verses 16 to 18. And there are a couple ways we could take this. Uh, Some people would say that Paul is is kind of uh, summarizing here Uh, Sometimes scholars will use the word telescoping. Uh, Maybe several different um, appearances of Jesus to Paul, but for the sake of time and convenience, he's sort of grouping them together and saying, these are the things that Jesus told me and putting them in temporally in this setting on the road to Damascus. Uh, The other possibility turns things around, though. What if this is not an... What if this retelling is not expanding on the other two passages? What if instead the other two passages are abridged versions of this fuller retelling. And that would make sense in light of the structure of Acts. Uh, Ben Witherington, for example, um, looks at that broader structure in these three retellings, and he would say this speech by Paul is really climactic in the flow of the book, that it's the climactic speech of Paul in particular, and uh, the idea is that Luke has been building through the book um, and that he's been saving certain details for this final retelling, intending to fill it out and to kind of complement what came before. Uh, but this is the high point. This is the grandest, the fullest account, purposefully, um, of what Jesus said to Paul, because, because Luke has been saving the best for last. And now here it is, the grand finale, what Witherington calls the, the commissioning of Paul by Christ on the road. And here we come again to a a major theme um, that we saw when Paul was on trial before Felix, which is to ask the question, Paul is justified in what he's been doing, what he's been preaching, why? Where does he get the, the, the guts to do this? 
Why is he so confident? Why, you know, where, where is his authority? Who gave him the right to preach this message and to do this work? And the answer is that Paul is giving is that my mission and my message come to me directly and objectively from the Lord Jesus Christ himself in person. That Paul is on a divine mission and not Festus, not Agrippa, not the Jerusalem elite, not the mob, not Felix, and not Caesar himself has the authority to tell Paul to, to cease and desist in that mission. Because his orders, we could say, come straight from the top. But rise and stand on your feet, Jesus tells him. And I love this. A couple of commentators point out um, something very, very similar happens in Ezekiel's prophetic call in Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel sees that overwhelming vision of the cherubim and uh, the wheels within wheels and everything in chapter 1. And then he sees the, the exalted throne of God. And it's described, by the way, as uh, God's uh, glory having brightness all around him. And in response, what happens to Ezekiel in response to that brilliant glory of God, he falls on his face, just as Paul falls on his face in, with the brightness shining from heaven from Jesus. And then the Lord says to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet, just like Jesus says to Paul here, and I will speak with you. And then, what does the Lord do? Well, he sends Ezekiel to preach prophetically to the Israelites. So, see, Paul is seeing himself, Luke is portraying him, the Lord designed for Paul to be a, a, a sort of successor to those Old, Old Testament prophets, standing right in line with the way the Lord has always communicated his word to his people. Those Old Testament prophets who, like Ezekiel, had their mission from the Lord directly, and who were duty-bound, therefore, to carry it out, no matter whether their audience listened and believed them or not, no matter what kind of opposition their audience gave to them, and uh, what kinds of threats and persecution they endured as a result. And that is how uh, Paul goes on describing Jesus' message to him. Stand upon your feet, he says, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. Notice how Paul's showing that Christ was already anticipating, even at the very dawn of Paul's Christian life this day, this season of Paul's life, with Paul on trial before both the Gentiles and his own people. See, the point here is that none of this has caught the Lord Jesus by surprise. That the Lord Jesus is the one who has prepared even this very moment for Paul and who has prepared Paul for this moment. Therefore, King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So again, Paul has not taken it upon himself to preach the gospel. He's simply doing what the risen Christ gave him to do. Uh, think about 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, where Paul says, For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. To this day, Paul says in verse 22, I have had the help that comes from God. He's saying, "'Tis grace that's brought me safe thus far. And so I stand here, testifying to both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I am not an innovator, but a renovator. 
I teach no new thing, but I repeat and establish old things. People say they believe the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's what they were all about, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's all there. It's all in the Old Testament. If only Paul's opponents would take their blinders off, their spiritual blinders, and would look at the big picture to see what God has revealed in those scriptures from the very beginning, that he hasn't suddenly changed course midway and and veered off in a different direction. He has simply carried forward into completion and fulfillment exactly what he said he was going to do. We come at last to verse uh, 24, where Festus kind of butts in and, and shoots back at Paul with this very dismissive, uh, cutting, almost exasperated-sounding kind of joke. And apparently, he says it in an emotionally charged way with a loud voice, He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Now, I want to ask you, in the context of the book of Acts, what does that remind you of? It's significant. We're coming here near to the end of Acts, and there is a correspondence between Festus' dismissal of Paul and something that happens way back at the beginning, chapter 2. The day of Pentecost. All the foreign-born Jews gathered in Jerusalem. They're amazed that they're each hearing the gospel in their own language. And many of them believe, but some did what? They mocked and they dismissed these Christians being drunk, full of new wine, they said. And Peter gets up, and in response there at Pentecost, he says, No, they are not drunk. That's a ridiculous thing to say. It's early in the morning, and you're, you're hearing them say, Sensible things, speaking in your languages, a a clear, sober truth of the gospel. It's a very similar kind of response that Paul gives here to Festus. I am not out of my mind, Festus. I am speaking true and and rational words. This is one of the most exciting parts of the story, I think, really, of all Paul's trials. What he does here is he really goes on offense. He's not being offensive. But he's also not merely playing defense either. He changes the rules of engagement to the point that you start to think, wait a second, who is really on trial? Who is really on trial here? Is it Paul? Sort of. But you look at who else is on trial before the Lord and before his witness representative in this courtroom. It's King Agrippa. And secondarily, Governor Festus. Paul says, Festus, the, the king, King Agrippa knows what I'm talking about. And now I'm, I'm going to turn to him and I'm going to ask him point blank, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's pressing upon him the unavoidable question, do you believe or not? Cannot put off or seek some middle way for Christ or against him. Embracing him or rejecting him is remarkable. What an outlandish thing for someone in Paul's position here to say to the person supposedly helping to judge him. But of course, remember from last time, well, remember from a few verses ago, he knows the Lord Jesus had prepared him for this very moment. From the very beginning, very first day of his Christian life, the Lord Jesus told him he was going to be in a situation like this. 
And remember from last time that Paul knows that as he's in the dock here, that he is also simultaneously seated with Christ in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Festus or Agrippa or Caesar or anyone else. And he knows that King Agrippa is in fact under the authority of one higher than he. And that he must have, he must have impressed upon him the claims of the king of the universe to his allegiance and love and faith and obedience. It is the same for him, the king, as it is for the commonest person in the rank and file of his kingdom. Sadly, though Agrippa does not respond in faith in this context, he, he sidesteps Paul's question by answering it with another question. Classic uh, passive-aggressive tactic, right? Uh, nice and evasive, but of course it does not help Agrippa truly escape from the Christ before whom he will not bow. And yet, even Paul, even Agrippa's refusal here becomes an occasion for all of those in earshot of this book for ages to come, including us here today, for all of us to be reminded that the call of the gospel is a universal call, irrespective of status or title or position in life. It is a call to every man and woman and boy and girl, as Paul says, small and great. Verse 22. No one is so high and mighty in life that they are above it. No one is so low and needy in life that they are below it. If this gospel call was to be impressed upon the people putting Paul on trial here, then it's a call for everyone. And Paul's desire was for every single person in that room to know the same salvation through Christ that had transformed his own life, to become just like him as servants of Jesus, except for the part about being arrested on trial for their lives, of course. And the message he bore that day is the same message the church bears today, including the one that's coming from this pulpit this morning and every Lord's Day here at Resurrection. So listen, brothers and sisters, here's the thing to take away for us, that we are not innovators, we are renovators. We teach no new thing, we repeat and establish old things, which the apostles and all godly teachers have taught before us, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. That is our message. And that that Christ calls us then, one and all, to a new life of loyalty and love towards him. Resting in his finished work for us that that paid the price on the cross for our salvation and earned for us a place in the family of God. I want you to be very sure this morning, then, that you are not in your life meeting that call, meeting that wide open invitation to small and great with the mockery of a festus, on the one hand, or, no less soul-deadly, the evasiveness and delay of an Agrippa. Today is the day of salvation for each of us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this 
opportunity that you gave Paul and the opportunity you've given us to witness it in your word. Lord, we pray that you would please help us to hold fast to and defend and proclaim that that truth once for all delivered to the saints. Help us to believe it. Help us to obey it, living under the lordship of Christ, not mocking or evading his rule, submitting to it in faith and obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.